It's a wonderful thing to think of Jesus' bride, the church, adorned with the glory of his truth. And the ministry of God's word is intended to distribute some of those gems with which you can adorn yourself if you take the more earnest heed to the things which you hear. Today's study, the 14th, on the topic looking for unity, is going to be more particularly a continuance of the previous study, the 13th, that occurred last Sunday, then some of the other studies, although all of these studies, in that they're in a series on one topic, they certainly are best understood within the context of the overall narrative of these teachings. But we were looking last Sunday on what I thought would be our last session investigating the application of the subtopic captured by the phrase out of bounds or out of balance. You'll recall we did not conclude that message and so we'll do so as the Lord allows today. We were thinking through the application of the ancient motto, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. Thinking through, I say, as it relates to how that speaks to this question of distinguishing between things that are out of balance over against things that are out of bounds, so that we don't make the mistake of placing in the category of camels that which belongs in the category of gnats, or vice versa. And we were at the point in our study when we were reflecting on some things that the Scriptures state are clearly out of bounds. And I suggested that we would look at three different items under this heading, the first being that which is false, the second being that which is formal, the third being that which is frozen. We got through the section on false religion and saw that among many other passages as well as the entire tenor of the gospel record, we are told in Revelation 18 and verse 4 that we are not to dilly-dally around and seek to cajole and find clever ways by which to align ourselves with the Ahabs or with false religion of our time, the Babylonian system. We are given direction by the loving Lord Jesus, who is our head, who we should not presume to love more or better or more wisely than he he says, come out. That's the loving thing to do. Come out from demonstrably persistent false religion. We come then to the second category, that which is formal, the formalists, we might call them. I bring that category to you because of what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5. The context of that chapter is perilous times. The Spirit foresaw that perilous times would enter in as history went on its linear path. And among the descriptions that demarcate these perilous times, the fourth verse 
states that men will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And we are told in the fifth verse that as a consequence of placing more value in pleasure and fun and the immediate felt experience, the way in which it tantalizes the emotions and the eyes and the senses and the flesh. Verse 5 says that they will have a form of godliness, but they will deny the power thereof. And we are given clear direction here. We are told to apotrepo. We are told to turn from that religious formalism. From such, he says, turn away. Now the idea here, giving the language of form as Paul does, this is the notion of something that has the right box, therefore it might have a right set of doctrines. It is stated that they have the form, and therefore there are walls, there is a demarcation that is present, so we'll say they have the right box, but the container is empty. And that description is by no means just a clever way of restating Paul's word. It is in keeping with the biblical theology that Paul is expressing here, because there are types that precede the remark of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5 that inform how we are to think about this concept. For example, we can go back to 590 BC, and we're in the kingship of Zedekiah, the final Judean king. And you'll remember with me that according to the book of Ezekiel, there was a place that formally, and I don't mean it used to be this way, that sort of formally, but with respect to the walls, with respect to the shape of things, there was a place, none other than the temple of God itself, that with respect to the power, with respect to the glory, with respect to the presence of God, it became empty. And what I'm directing you to is the prophecies and the testimony of Ezekiel, found particularly in the 11th chapter in the 23rd verse, where he tells us that the kavod of God, the glory of the Lord, had departed from the temple. And I think that we sometimes refer to what the Babylonians did to that Solomonic structure as the destruction of the temple. And I'm not per se disagreeing with that expression, but I would suggest to you in many respects, it was not the destruction of the temple. It was the destruction of a building. Because once the glory of God leaves a place, then the sanctity of it the meaningfulness of it loses all argumentation. In the language of Paul, he says, with respect to religion, Christian religion even, that which claims to be Christian, he says, turn away. And so that is clearly out of bounds in terms of something that we should not be unifying with. But we could go back another 
500 years in history and come to the year 1067 BC. This is prior to any kings ruling in Israel or at the end of the era of the judges. And there was another situation that was similar to that which I just described and perhaps should have served as a warning to the Jews of Ezekiel's generation, but it clearly did not make its mark. And my hope is that these examples that precede us, along with the warning of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, don't miss their application in our own thinking, in our own discernment. What I'm referring to here occurs in the life and in the time frame of Phinehas, the son of Eli, and that which occurred to his wife, Eli's daughter-in-law. You know the story. You find it beginning in, say, 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 12. Eli's daughter-in-law bears a son in troubled times. Let's correlate that to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5. The scriptures say that in the last days, troubled times will come. And certainly that was the case under the high priest's governorship of Eli, when he himself was not overseeing the house of God well, when his two sons were highly rebellious, when there was a form of Jewish religiosity, but in many respects the power, the moral effect of what the Jewish religion should have brought to pass was not making itself felt within the family of the high priest himself. And therefore, there was no real example that was being established in Israel. And as a consequence, God manifested their true spiritual condition by allowing their enemies to overcome them in battle. And I suggest to you that similar experiences will always be the case when the glory has departed. And you'll remember with me that... Eli's daughter-in-law gives birth and the midwives say to her that she should fear not for she has given birth to a son. And in normal times when someone gives birth to a male child, one has just brought forth the prospects of the future. One has just continued the story of Israel that God himself began in Abraham. And this is something to rejoice about. But there seems to have been beyond just the despair that was in the nameless daughter-in-law of Eli, nameless in terms of what we know as Bible readers. There seems to have been perhaps a spiritual perception in her that was overcoming any instinct to joy. Number one, of course, she herself was in the state of passing away through the travail of the birth that evidently didn't go well because perhaps the glory was departing. You know with me that Eli had fallen backward and had died. You know that Hophni and Phinehas were killed in battle. You know with me that the ark of the Lord was taken. And what I'm stressing to you is that though this son was birthed, the wife of Phinehas saw no joy in the occasion and she named the child Ik Kavod, the glory has departed, or as it possibly could be translated in that the E prefix is very unusual in Hebrew construction, 
you will find that expositors suggest that it could be translated as a question, where is the glory? And so perhaps what is going on here is the following. The midwives tell the wife of Phineas, fear not, you have given birth to a son. But what she responds with is, where is the glory when all we have is the outer form of what used to be Israel? What is the point of bringing a child into the box that is now the empty space of Israel? Where is the joy? Where is the glory in perpetuating this story if God is not there? And dear brothers and sisters, that is a deep question that we should be asking ourselves. It might be the case that a new member comes into your meeting. It might be the case that some new space is able to be obtained because the budget allows, or you can hire special musicians for your worship service. And typically there would be a degree of joy that would be associated with that, but perhaps there would be some observant members within your circle who would say, where is the glory when you fill the box with all sorts of things, but you aren't filling it with the power and glory of God? What is the use of bringing a son into a nation void of God's presence? What is the use of adding to the church roles more members into a space that might have a good sound formalism but lacks the glory? The effort to be fruitful when the national womb is barren was felt to be pointless by Eli's daughter-in-law. Think of that, dear brothers and sisters. She was to rejoice because her womb was fruitful, but... She felt as though the national womb was barren, lacking the glory and power of God for us as we know the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power in its appropriate measures. Well, this reminds us of some other occasions, just so you can see the pattern in the Bible. Shortly after what occurred in Israel's history in the era of Eli, that same phenomenon occurred in the life of an individual, the first king of Israel. We won't relay Saul's life in detail, but we will read to you a verse touching his life found in 1 Samuel 16 in verse 14. There we read, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Think of that for a moment. Saul continued to reign as king. He continued to have the outward form of the ministry that had once been given to him and within which he once operated with a genuine anointing. But over time, he had so disregarded the word of God, he had become so insolent that the Lord had to rip from him the anointing that he had previously given. And the evidence of this can be no more profoundly recognized and in the language I just read to you, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. But brethren, just as nature abhors a vacuum, so too in the spiritual realm, the absence of God, whether it's in the temple 
within Israel, or it's in the Ark of the Covenant, or it's within the church of Jesus Christ, or it's within an individual, when the presence of the Lord leaves that place for whatever reasons, as Jesus clearly teaches us when he speaks about the influence and the realm of the spiritual powers, he says when spaces are found void and empty and walled but not occupied by God's holy presence, then something will come in its place. And indeed in Saul's life, we read in the very next phrase, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And I would suggest to you, while it's beyond the scope of these studies, that in that there is a true analysis in my view of church history that runs along the lines of a formal sustaining of doctrinal positions over time. That is to say, doctrine has been attended to and structures of orthodoxy have been erected, but there's been a lack of appreciation for the relevance of the apostolic power that was received and was managed responsibly and without the excesses of the modern charismatic movement as it is often displayed in the public awareness. There was a responsible and theologically well-balanced manifestation of the Spirit in preaching, in biblical understanding. They were led into truth, and they also ministered with power to the needs of the assembly itself, and as well were able to preach with power to the unsaved, and able to lay hands on the sick and see them recover, to cast out demons and see them set free, and so on. And I'm saying that in some senses, the formal structure of the churches over time, absent that presence and operation of the Spirit, is an explanation for the bickering and the divisions and the separations that have been the story of Christian history. In some sense, though I'm not saying in some overweening way, some extreme fashion, that Everything that has been under the name of Christianity that has not known the precise experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is therefore under the direct influence of an evil spirit. I'm not saying that, but I hope you can hear what I am saying. There's a principle here that is applicable, and that is if the Spirit of the Lord leaves the work of God, it makes it all the more susceptible for the influence of evil spirits of false doctrine or just the flesh because the fruits of the Spirit will not be as richly developed in such cases. And so one of the ironies that we live under, and it is, I understand, partly here because of the excesses that are very rife in the broader charismatic community. But nonetheless, one of the ironies of our own understanding of the Christian religion is that we think that 
a people that claim to have the baptism in the Holy Spirit, that speak in tongues, if you please, that believe in the miraculous for today, that is to say that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that the prayer of faith will still heal the sick, that that there are gifts that are given to the body collective by which it can minister to itself in love. The bottom line being that wherever the Spirit is manifest, then there'll be more confusion. There'll be more flesh. There'll be more demonstrations of uh, all sorts of chaos. And I'm suggesting to you that though there's no magic cure for this, Nonetheless, I am saying it is actually in the locations where the Spirit of God is welcomed and understood and His full authority is ministered under the headship of Jesus Christ and in direct obedience to the Word of God. He's the Spirit of truth after all and He will not work contradictory to the very text that He inspired, but He does lead us into all truth. And when there is an active presence of the Spirit of God, then the ministry will speak to the direct needs of people's hearts and your hearts yourselves, if you build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, can experience a deep work of God, purging out the leaven in places that in more formal religious settings are never shined upon. And so there's another reason, dear brothers and sisters, why the Bible tells us that where there is just a formalized religion, you are not to unify with that. You are not to add your long-standing support. Recall with me that we have said, using this motto, that in everything charity. So I'm not stating here that you wouldn't reach out and seek to share your faith and even have communications with individuals within those circumstances, even sustained communications, whereby you hope that there can be a building understanding and and entering into a richer appreciation of what the Bible says more perfectly. But with respect to unifying with it, and as it were, adding your aid and helping to sustain such things, the Bible says, no, you turn away. Now, you can do it lovingly. You can do it with tears rolling down your cheeks. You can do it with all sorts of kind explanations, but you are to turn away. It's out of bounds. And it is possible for your heart, dear child of God, to come to a conviction about these matters. I know that because I see it in the life of David. David, not unlike, sadly, in some respects, at least at one intersection of his life. Not unlike Eli, not unlike Saul, David so grieved God that he was very, very close. In fact, no doubt in some senses lived in the experience for some time where like Saul, maybe to the eyes of others, he seemed to be a better formalized presentation of Jewish kingship. What with his history, what with his Presentez-vous, what with his visage, what with his previous biography. But God knew the truth that the one occupying the king's house by the name of David was more of a shell of a man than he was filled with the anointing and with the presence of God. After, as you understand, I'm inferring, after he sinned as he did with Bathsheba, 
and what he did to Uriah. Remember with me, as we think upon the truth of what I stated, that the Bible, I believe it's, I believe it's in Romans, maybe even chapter 1. The Bible says that David was a prophet. And all you need to do is read the many Psalms and other things to see that when he was walking with God, he was like an angel of the Lord. As the woman said, who knows what is coming in the future and nothing can be hid from him. He spake many messianic Psalms because there was a prophetic anointing within him. But as it related to his status after he so grieved God that the spirit departed from him, there was no prophetic anointing within him speaking about the sin in his life. That's why I'm saying that it actually is the case where the spirit is more active. And however we would biblically get to that, we should pursue it with all of our hearts. It wasn't within David's own being that his sin was addressed in the still of the night when he was before Almighty God. It had to come through Nathan. But you'll remember David's language in his penitential psalm. You'll remember, dear brothers and sisters, that perhaps David was reflecting on what he had learned had occurred in the house of Eli. What he had recently seen happen in Saul's life. When he knew that I have to respect this form of a man named Saul, because nonetheless there is still some standing walls of a previous work of God, and I am not arguing that we disrespect the forms of truth. I preach those same walls myself. But I'm concerned about what's in the container, not just the ark itself, not just the box itself. And what I'm saying is David might have reflected on these truths and thought to himself, I could carry out the rest of my life looking the part, playing the part, but I am aware that I would be a hypocrite, that I would not be able to fulfill God's true calling upon me. I think it went beyond certainly just, you might say, the utilitarian calculation. I'm just trying to express the concerns with language. But what we can see is David in Psalm 51 and verse 11. He says, don't cast me away from your presence. Certainly that's the active sense of God standing in a place and pushing David out. But it has the net effect of the idea we're talking about when God leaves the location and the box becomes empty. David is saying, I don't want to be a shell of a man without the Spirit of God working within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. The language of Proverbs 29 and verse 18 is appropriate. Where there is no vision, the people perish. I'm not so elevating the experience of a vision itself, but I am stating that the need of a dynamic work of the Spirit, not an extra biblical work of the Spirit, the canon is closed, but the canon still has to be dug into, and there are marvelous things to be beheld, and we need to have our eyes opened, and we need to be led into all truth by the Spirit. And I'm stating that when the dynamic of the Spirit isn't there to watch over that situation and bring about a vision through the understanding of the Word, and even support it with prophecy and with other appropriate 
manifestations of his loving presence. Dear brothers and sisters, where there is no vision, the people dry up or they opt for the production of a religious service that in spite of whatever garnishings it may have in terms of its music and its visual embellishments, in terms of the status of its preacher, it is nonetheless just a formal exercise if the glory has departed. But we do need to bring balance. That is the intent of these studies, isn't it? To help us think these things through. And so I have just made the case in being obedient to the language of the Apostle Paul, and I am in complete sympathy with it. That which is merely formal, we are to turn away from that. But in my view, that does not mean that we therefore must give a categorical denunciation of all Reformed cessationism. Now, it might be that some would disagree with me. I did just set forth a fairly powerful argument that should at least give you pause for reflection. But nonetheless, I will seek to make distinctions in your understandings that I think are spiritually appropriate and helpful so that even with these impulses that come from the Word to turn away from formal religion, we don't wind up violating the Scriptures and making certain things that are less than camel size, perhaps not not size, but less than camel size, well, making them more big than the Lord would have us in terms of how do we manage these issues. So what I'm referring to is, for example, the following. If we do have to denounce categorically all Reformed cessationism, are you aware of what that entails? Among other things, you would have to denounce categorically the ministry, the value, the worthiness of Benjamin Breckingridge Warfield. Now, it isn't so much that I'm taking that one man and using his name and I'm expecting you to say, Oh dear, not Mr. Warfield of all men. I bring that to you because he is commonly touted as being the most influential cessationist scholar of modern times. Mr. Warfield himself was born in 1851 in Lexington, Kentucky. That'll be significant in just a moment. He passed away in 1921 in Princeton, New Jersey. He was the outstanding systematic theologian of the old Princeton Theological Seminary. Indeed, for good reason, Warfield is held to be the most influential cessationist scholar of our times. He gained that claim to some notoriety via the publication in 1917 of a work entitled Counterfeit Miracles, which was believed to prove beyond any doubt the case for cessationism. And it remains a standard apologetic against the continuous perspective. They who believe that the gifts of the Spirit are relevant for our times. They are still to be in force. They are still being, as it were, offered and made available by Almighty God. But something you might want to understand about Mr. Warfield... While it is true 
that this work entitled Counterfeit Miracles, in my view, has done an awful lot of damage, given his status as an otherwise sound-thinking and very credentialed theologian. This work on counterfeit miracles, arguing, in my view, as it does in such a reckless manner against all sorts of dimensions of the work of the Spirit, it's not that he doesn't say anything that is worth being said when he's dealing with things on the fringes and extremes and false manifestations of the Spirit, which, of course, Jesus and Peter dealt with themselves, which, of course, the Old Testament prophets dealt with, false prophets and false manifestations of the Spirit. But when Warfield treats his issue with such a broad and undistinguishing brush and argues very strongly for an absolute cessationist perspective that has set the trajectory to our times for a seemingly sound biblical position against the operation of the Spirit in our day. But I think it's helpful to know something about Warfield's own history, to start to know how to respond to this fact. A very helpful scholar by the name of John Mark Ruthven, who in my view has the best historically interacting work on the rise of cessationism, He relays the following concerning Warfield and the circumstance of Warfield's wife. He says, Counterfeit Miracles was written shortly after the death of Warfield's invalid wife. Annie Pierce Kincaid was her maiden name. Annie Pierce Warfield. Who had contracted a severe nervous disorder as a result of being caught in a lightning storm during their honeymoon in Europe many years previously. Outside of his classroom duties, Warfield remained through the years almost constantly beside his wife. We may only speculate on how this tragic long-term illness affected Warfield's perspective on miracles and divine healing. And so I offer that to you, first of all, because it's a useful thing to understand for anyone who's interacting with the question of continuance or cessationism, which perspective is more in line with the Bible. And while it's possible that Warfield somehow was able to isolate his feelings and that which occurred within his own experience with his wife and her invalid status and the fact that he was very devoted to her, which is very commendable of Warfield, that he carried out all of his duties, which is remarkable, and produced so many writings while caring for an invalid wife for many years. I'm suggesting to you that at a personal level, with respect to Warfield, one can perhaps understand where he's coming from at a personal level, for starters, and realize that here's someone, perhaps something like what we were discussing in last Sunday's teaching, here is someone who is clearly out of bounds. Recall Jehoshaphat? Clearly out of bounds in this particular aspect of his life when Jehoshaphat joined with Ahab. But overall, he wasn't entirely out of bounds 
So that while I would turn away from counterfeit miracles, at least in its overwrought assault against continuance with one broad swing of the sword, what I'm trying to say, and I hope you find this helpful, these exercises, I'm trying to say that I would not dismiss Warfield or many reformed ministers of the word of God that are indeed cessationists. And therefore, I have the concern of the element of formalism that they are susceptible to more so than someone who was a continuance promoter. But lest I get too entangled with what I'm trying to state here, I suppose it might be helpful for me first to state that I recognize that you can claim to have the Holy Spirit and be highly errant in your doctrine. What I'm trying to state very simply is there is a lot that Warfield and our Reformed brothers over the centuries and in our own day, there's a lot that they contribute that is very helpful and should be respected and valued. And I don't even mean that as if they're beneath us and we pat them on the head and we say, thank you for your systematic theology, Charles Hodge. Thank you very much, Archibald, Alexander, or whoever else. You know, I'm not stating it that way. I'm saying, while I'm trying to make these principles clear for your hearts, it is necessary that we bring balance to how we carry them out. Warfield was one of the few Southern theologians who did speak about the issue of slavery prior to the Civil War. I bring that observation to you as a way of manifesting that it is unbalanced, it is immature and reckless to reject everyone who doesn't have a full perception of what you believe the scriptures should teach, right? So what I'm trying to say is cessationism was essentially established through Warfield's ministry, but that's not what defines him in every last respect. And so understanding how to apply these principles is important. Speaking about his position on abolition, Warfield relays the following concerning his family's history. He's writing to a friend by the name of Joseph Torrance, and he relays the following. He says, John C. Young, the drawer or the composer, the writer of the resolutions of the Kentucky Synod of 1835, was the husband of my mother's first cousin. My grandfather, R.J. Breckingridge, ran on an emancipation ticket in 1849 at the peril of his life. Cassius M. Clay was the husband of my father's first cousin. My mother-in-law was an abolitionist of the garrison type. My grandparents, parents, and the parents of my wife sought in every way to do their duty to those to whom they felt themselves sinners to hold in bondage. In other words, they sought to do all they could to free the slaves. And as it relates to John Young, who he speaks of as being the husband of his mother's first cousin, I just thought I would give you the language of the article that he was referring to that 
was presented in the Kentucky Synod in 1835, some years before the outbreak of the Civil War. Whatever it is from 35 to 61, 26 years. The beginning of the article that was presented to the Kentucky Synod, it's in the South, reads like this. Dear brethren, the will of the Synod has made it our duty to lay before you a plan for the moral and religious instruction as well as for the future emancipation of the slaves under your care. We feel the responsibility and difficulty of the duty to which the church has called us. Yet the character of those whom we address strongly encourages us to hope that the labor will not be in vain. You profess to be governed by the principles and precepts of a holy religion. You recognize the fact that you have yourself been made free, speaking spiritually, by the blood of the Son of God, and you believe that you have been imbued with a portion of the same Spirit which was in Him, that is Jesus, who though He was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. When we point out to such persons their duty and call upon them to fulfill it, our appeal cannot be altogether fruitless. But we have a still stronger ground for our encouragement and our firm conviction that the cause which we advocate is the cause of God and that His assistance will make it finally prevail. May He who hears the cry of the poor and needy and who has commanded to let the oppressed go free, give to each one of us wisdom to know our duty and strength to do it. Well, I read that because it's remarkable for its language in Kentucky in 1835, and I'm stating that that Christian message was deeply intertwined into Warfield's family history, and he himself wrote on the issue of slavery and the freed men after the Emancipation Proclamation. And he was one of the relatively few Southern notable theologians who did so. For example, in an article for The Church at Home and Abroad, in 1887, that's 135 years ago, brethren, that Warfield is writing this, that I'm going to relay to you. He submitted an article entitled, A Calm View of the Freed Men's Case, that is, the former slaves that are now free. And a Kentucky pastor of our own day, a man by the name of David Prince, gives us a synopsis of what this article from Warfield contains. He writes the following. He attempts to awaken the American church, that is back in 1887, to its responsibility in the wake of what he calls, quote, this is Warfield, the terrible legacy of evil which generations of slavery have left to our freedmen, the former slaves. He adds... This responsibility, quote, is scarcely appreciated by any of us. Our continued responsibility to those who were formerly slaves. He's saying we're not really appreciating 
what our obligations are. He acknowledges that the freedmen, the former slaves, had significant obstacles to their rising and thriving because of, quote, so great a weight of prejudice, evil custom, and sad fate. Now, all of this that I'm presenting to you is to take the initial statement of Paul's, which we take seriously, that that which is formal, we are to turn away from. We are not to add our support in terms of helping it to continue and keeping that structure up, keeping the box there while ignoring the emptiness of it. Yet, as can be demonstrated from the chief cessationist himself, now I say chief cessationist, really what I'm trying to say is when you think of the position of cessationism, which in sensible thinking upholds the position of formalism or is dangerously in that direction. But when we think about that and we think about Warfield, he did not simply write counterfeit miracles. There is an entire body of literature that is useful. And he himself had some good things like Jehoshaphat had, one of which I just relayed to you, his relatively unique stand against slavery and his courage to make those remarks. So we come to our third category under that which is out of bounds, our third and final, and that is frozen. We are to distance ourselves from the frozen, the unrepentant. This is what we are told in Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. I will read from the ESV. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Stirs up division. Hereticos, from the verb heireo, means to grab fundamentally. It carries with it the connotation of destroying or killing. So let's understand what we're talking about here. We're talking about the unrepentant. We're not talking about the person who says something that is not very wise or very helpful and causes some consternation within the local assembly or even the larger family of God. We're talking about a person who stirs up division habitually, who is grabbing and killing and wrenching the tranquility of the church or of the churches away from the people of God and will not cease this behavior because though this one is warned once and then twice, if the individual remains unrepentant, then that individual, according to the word of God, is out of bounds. With similar language, Paul writes in Romans 16, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. You hear the language of out of bounds, do you not? The Bible speaks of that which is out of bounds. Have nothing to do with them. Avoid them. Come out from among them. Turn away from that. Here we are to mark individuals 
The verb is skopeo. The nominal form is skopos. When you make the remark that you should scope this out, you are using a word in now the English language that has an etymological history going back to this very verb. So this means that we are to scope out and be aware of how each of us is behaving, and there is the need to recognize the category of that which is out of bounds. That's what we're emphasizing here. Those that are causing divisions, causing offenses, you are to mark them. But even in Romans 16, while I am bringing these things to your attention, because they are to be obeyed, and in no sense are we undermining the need to obey these directives when they are applied. It is nonetheless proper to bring balance to how we think about these directives and how they influence, influence us emotionally and with respect to our judgments and assessments. In Romans chapter 16, I just read to you from verse 17 of that chapter, the preceding 16 verses promote relationships among all sorts of individuals. I won't go through the list of people that Paul speaks of with commending language, but the point being that prior to saying, mark the individuals that cause divisions, he relays his warmth and his greetings and his love for a whole host of people. And if you have any practical sense at all, you know that this array of names carried with them varying personalities and spiritual development and relational abilities. And certainly all of these relationships necessitated love and patience and and mercy and so on. And therefore, what I'm trying to state is, yes, there are individuals that are out of bounds and they need to be marked. But there's something that is a distortion of this scriptural principle when we find ourselves so easily just marking all kinds of men and ministries and individuals, you know. So going back to what I was saying about Warfield, you know, he wrote a book entitled Counterfeit Miracle probably an unwise, somewhat emotional reaction stemming from his own experience with his beloved wife. That's not good. We will need to address that. I'll give you a method in just a moment. But what I'm trying to state is not only should he not be categorically put out of bounds as if there was nothing else that was good in his life, as if it was like he wrote that book, the Spirit of God left him like Saul in all he did is go down, down, down and sin more and more. And he died at the door of the witch of Endor. I'm saying that's not the way you deal with this. I disagree with John MacArthur's cessationist position, but I don't state that everything he preaches and every part of his influence has been unedifying and unhelpful. As a matter of fact, I'm quite happy to state very specifically that much that he has taught and Master's Seminary as well as other places have been very excellent locations of bringing forth good sound teaching that men can then take forward and perhaps bring the Holy Spirit 
into and bring it all the more alive. I'm simply trying to make sure that we understand in this whole project of looking for unity, how to make distinctions between that which is out of bounds and that which is out of balance so that we're not just marking everybody with a sharpie with indelible ink that is so permanent that we fail to appreciate anything else about their life. Here's a marking for you. I, Paul, said unto Peter, before them all, you're not walking according to the truth of the gospel. You know what I'm referring to. Galatians chapter 2. There's a marking. Paul marks Peter before everyone. But that's just my point. He isn't marking him with indelible ink. He isn't dismissing Peter and giving Peter no chance to respond, stating that because Peter failed at this moment to walk uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, As a matter of fact, remember the language of Romans 16 and verse 17, because in Galatians chapter 2, we're told that Peter withdrew and separated himself, and he drew others with him, and they caused separations. Actually, the word dissimulation comes from the Greek word hypocrites, but essentially... What we're reading here is that Peter's actions caused divisions. And what is verse 17 of Romans 16? You mark those that cause divisions and you avoid them. But you have to keep a balance, dear brothers and sisters, in how you carry these things out. I'm not stating that the concept of keeping a balance means that at the end of the day, you never actually run into a situation where you mark someone and that mark stays for as long as they continue their divisive behavior. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. I'm not saying that there are formalized places that may even have reformed theology that you should not support, that you should not join yourself with because they're so victim patriarchally opposed to the baptism and so recklessly managing that whole question that it is contrary to God's word for you to join that. I'm not saying such a situation would never happen if you're listening to me. But at the same time, I hope that the observations I'm giving is are helping you to think these things through. In other words, Paul marked Peter, but he gave Peter, as it were, an opportunity to respond. That is important. That might sound like, well, isn't that obvious? Well, if it's so obvious, then do it. Give someone an opportunity to respond and maybe they need more than the moment that is right now, that is occurring right now. Let them think about it, pray about it, share the word with them and give them an opportunity to understand the way of the Lord more perfectly. And remember, of course, which is a subtext to everything I'm saying, there are different levels of unity. I've already said that. In essentials, we must have unity. But even there, the question is, essential for what? Essential for existing on the earth? Well, no, because God said, I'm not taking you out of the earth. You're going to walk among fornicators, covetous, murderers, adulterers, and you are to treat them with mercy and kindness. You are not to bless God and then curse man with your tongue. You hear what I'm saying? You're to treat them with kindness and mercy. So in that sense, you are maintaining some degree of fellowship. Now, if you don't do that, and that might be you, 
you might be coarse and non-friendly and you would never help the wayfarer on the road to Jericho. You'd go on the other side. So it matters what category we're talking about. What I'm stating is maybe there isn't enough agreement for there to be membership in a particular church, but that doesn't mean you have to mark people with such a black dot recklessly, and you don't even know what the rest of their life is. You haven't even bothered to find out what they're about. I'm stating things that are relevant because there is a great deal of this sort of reckless marking and division that I'm trying to speak to. If you think about the seven churches of Asia Minor, five out of seven of them were in need of repentance. Five out of seven. And yet they were all addressed by Jesus Christ himself as being churches. We could list their various faults. I have a whole listing of all of the characteristics of these churches. I won't be working through them. You know what they are. But I can tell you this, Smyrna is 35 miles away from Ephesus. Pergamos is 49 miles away from Smyrna. Thyatira is 38 miles away from Pergamos. Sardis, 32 from Thyatira. Philadelphia, 27 from Sardis. Laodicea, 48 from Philadelphia. Ephesus, 96 from Laodicea. You might know that the seven churches of Asia Minor geographically are located in something of a circle. And I just gave you mile distances that are nothing in comparison to the distances that Paul and Timothy and Apollos and Peter and women walked in the same generation. John, the apostle, why raise those observations? What I'm trying to say is that, yes, we are to mark that which is unrepentant, that which is frozen in a position of refusing to change, and we are to avoid it. And ultimately, with these seven churches in Asia Minor, for example, with Ephesus, they were warned that if they don't repent, if they stay frozen in their present spiritual sinful status, then Jesus said, I will remove the lampstand from its place. You can think about Laodicea. They thought they were doing fine before the Lord, but the Lord addressed their sins. And he said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. But he's warning them, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And what I'm wanting you to feel is that these were real churches that had these real situations. And I need to double back on what I just previously stated. They were addressed for the time being by Jesus as churches. They were the stars that were in his hand. I hope that comes through. I'm stating that he could have told Ephesus, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, easily any of those churches, he could have told the faithful members in those churches, leave that church and everybody go to either Smyrna or Philadelphia. They were close enough in distance for that to certainly be the case. But what Jesus did, similar to what Paul did with Peter, is he marked them, but not with indelible ink, in the sense that, they were not given a chance to repent. 
I hope you're hearing what I'm saying. It's the difference between that which does have some real issues over against that which is frozen. There are situations that are frozen. I mean, for all practical purposes, this is an obvious one, but that you understand what I'm saying. The Roman Catholic system is frozen. It's been given all kinds of chances to repent, and it doesn't matter what kind of relative movement of the Roman Catholic glacier happens over time. The fact of the matter is, is it's been given a chance to repent for generations and it does not and therefore one should avoid it and one should not join it. It is out of bounds. But there are other church situations that have some real problems. And I would say to you that before you just dismiss everything that doesn't look just like what you're familiar with or what you know to be right, you need to remember that these churches in Asia Minor were churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the time being, he was addressing them and giving them a chance to repent. Well, I hope we have time to close with that which is out of balance. I will have to move through this material, I think, a little more rapidly. There is a category that is distinctly to be understood as containing those that are out of balance. They are not out of bounds. They are out of balance. Romans 14. Let's begin with verse 14. Paul says, I know... There's the emphasis I feel that is appropriate to think this through from, because you could put your place, yourself in Paul's place. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean. He's talking about non-moral issues of life, whether it's objects, as you'll see, meat, for example, clothing, those sorts of things. He's not saying there's nothing immoral. He's saying those things that were considered unclean by the Old Testament law as presented in Leviticus 11 or Deuteronomy 14. Paul is saying he understands that within the context of the new covenant, there is nothing intrinsically about, intrinsic about these things that make them unclean. Unclean, nothing unclean of itself, but to the one who thinks it is unclean, to him it is. But if thy brother be grieved with your food, broma, meat, now you walk not charitably, not in love. Destroy not with your food him for whom Christ died. Let not your good be evil spoken of. Well, this is a fairly clear case, so we won't have to labor it. But what we see here is here is an individual has a certain view of the present application of the law. That still occurs in our time. It was all the more current in Paul's day, but it stands as a principle for someone who has a certain understanding about the word or about the will of God and you know that they're wrong. Just like Paul says, I know from the Lord Jesus that we're not under the old covenant and those things never were unclean intrinsically anyway. I now see that, but I have brethren among me who don't. Among me, brethren who don't. They are not to be viewed as out of bounds. You're not to mark them and say they're unrepentant, they're frozen. You have to be able to make these distinctions. 
they're out of balance. And he says, you yourself are out of balance, maybe even tending toward a frozen status of unrepentance, at least from God's perspective. You might start to drift to the out of bounds if you don't treat your brother with understanding and realize there's a category of that which is out of balance and I'm to understand it and relate to it lovingly and not offend it. As is said in Romans 14 and verse 20, for food don't destroy the building project of God. There are things that are out of balance that people react to too severely. They strain at these gnats and destroy the building process. One author puts it this way, Paul's assumption is that the weak are just as essential to the congregation as the strong. Since a building will collapse when either part of its structure is removed. It is a remarkably pluralistic view of the church whose integrity, that is the church, can only be preserved when each group takes responsibility for the growth toward maturity of the other side. This is the idea of they who feel themselves to be strong and perhaps they are right in that view of themselves on this issue. Say, for example, like Paul, he says, I know and I'm persuaded. I'm clear-headed on this issue about the freedom to eat various foods. But the argument here is there's a building process going on and some structures within a building are constitutionally more robust in strength aspects, pillars of the structure. Other things are not quite as strong, but they're all a part of the building process. And if you rip out those weak things, the thing's going to collapse. This is a part of the living nature of how God builds his temple. And for the building process to go well, we all have to be thinking about the other and helping the other to mature as opposed to pushing them out of bounds because of something that they hold that isn't in your view and perhaps as a matter of fact isn't a sound understanding of the scriptures on this matter. So there's still certainly a category for you yourself standing fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free and being not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. In Galatians 5, Paul says, Behold, I say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ will not profit you anything. What I'm stating is you need to think about your own life. You need to think about how you're understanding God's word and God's message. If you believe personally that circumcision is going to save you, you're wrong. If you believe personally that staying away from non-kosher foods is going to save you, you're wrong. And the apostle and good brethren will speak to you about those issues and encourage you toward liberty. But the very one who said, I say to you, if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing, went on and circumcised Timothy in order to manifest love to his brothers who would stumble otherwise right off the bat and not be able to receive his ministry. Do you hear what I'm saying? 
And so what Paul probably whispered into Timothy's ear while he was circumcising him is if you trust in this circumcision, Timothy, if you, I, Paul, say to you, Timothy, if you trust in this circumcision, Christ will profit you nothing. So what we're working with here is something in the direction of 1 Corinthians 8. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. That is to say, when you increase in knowledge, if you don't carry with that the interest to speak that truth in love, that everyone might grow up into Jesus in all things, which is the head, even Christ. If you don't endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, then you might have these isolated verses that aren't taken into the whole context of at least the Pauline corpus, in which the emphasis is certainly you personally stand in the liberty of what your understanding is. But you also be thoughtful about the category of those that are out of balance. And if you find that even in those situations that they're placing their faith in these works of the law, say for example, then it's your calling to help them to understand the way of the Lord more perfectly, as did Aquila and Priscilla for Apollos. Because here's a situation, given the description of what's before you, here's a situation of something that is out of balance and not out of bounds. Are you hearing me, brothers and sisters? Because I just gave you several texts in the previous category where Paul said, avoid them, come out from among them, have nothing to do with them, mark them and separate yourself. And yet I'm showing you now passages where Paul is saying, in this situation, you are to note them specifically in in order to manifest love and consideration. Therefore, there is clearly a category of that which is out of bounds, and a category of that which is out of balance. We then who are strong ought to bear the scruples, according to the New King James Version, of the weak, and not to please ourselves. We are to be considerate to the unlearned. Paul makes the case in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, if the whole church is come together in one place and everybody speaks in tongues in this public meeting. And there's no interpretation, there's no interest in manifesting something sensible to the average man within this context. If somebody comes in who is unlearned or an unbeliever, they're going to say you're mad. And he says, that's a problem. You need to be considerate of the unlearned. Now, that they don't understand that the Holy Spirit can operate that way is an evidence that they're wrong. But here again, I'm giving you the principle that this is something that is out of balance, you know? In other words, there are things that you should be mindful of as you conduct yourself in the church and with other people so you don't unnecessarily offend the unlearned. Now, can you take anything too far? Yes. <laughs> That's why these teachings are as long as they are, because I'm trying to show you there's balances and there's lots of instruction in these teachings. You know, I'm swimming around a little bit too much probably, but uh, this same man who just made that point in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 14 says in verse 39, forbid not to speak in tongues. But you can't take that and then have this divisive way about you where 
for example, if Paul hadn't said it himself, you would be against, say, for example, a pastor admonishing the church. Let's be mindful of using tongues before we speak to somebody about the truth of Acts chapter 2 and what it all means. You know, let's just be mindful of that because we're going to have several visitors today and we don't want them to think we're mad before we give them a chance to hear the gospel. Do you understand what I'm saying? Some people might feel like you can't do that. You're out of bounds and they're out of bounds. And what what you're doing is you're dividing. You're forgetting something else in the Bible that sounds like this. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Yes, as these teachings have consistently argued, the moral must come before the moving. Certainly, exclusivity comes before inclusivity. Biblical unity first has to be good and biblical before we just speak of its beauty and how wonderful it is that we are now experiencing this. But we do have to make sure that we are excluding that which is out of bounds and not that which is out of balance, including the unlearned. Listen to these words of Jonathan Edwards on these ideas. He says, We have shown how the godly differ from the ungodly. They differ specifically and essentially. But even the godly themselves are not without their differences. Amen? They're not without their differences, one from another, but it is only a gradual difference. They all agree in essentials and are all exceedingly and essentially distinguished from the ungodly. They differ from the ungodly as the living differ from the dead. They differ one from another as the living differ among themselves in degrees of health and strength and stature. The argument that Edwards is making is that when you're thinking through fellowship and relationship soundly, you are making essential observations. You are making observations about things that are essential, that go down to life and death, things that would tend in that direction. Why is that so important? Because as it is with us who are living, he uses the metaphor of life itself. The difference between the believer and the really problematic person that you can't join with is the difference between, in life, the living and the dead. And you know there's an essential difference there, and it separates us from having fellowship and joining and communing with one another, in the natural world. But among the living, among, think not spiritually now, think about the human population. Among the living population, there's all kinds of differences among us nonetheless. And in a somewhat similar sense, spiritually, Christians who are alive spiritually, nonetheless, differ in many respects in their personalities, in their understandings, in their biblical knowledge. And you can make the mistake of taking that which is different from you, but not essentially different, and labeling it categorically ungodly and out of bounds. In the natural world, we who are alive bodily are also well aware that 
other living beings differ very much. And I think there is some application to the body of those who are spiritually alive can nonetheless be quite different in the way that that spiritual life is presented. And we need to make the distinction between that which is essentially dead and that which is practically different than we are. Well, I close with this quotation from Robert Jewett. Genuine tolerance of one's opponent, someone with whom you differ, is a logical step for those who are conscious that they themselves have been treated tolerantly by God. According to the argument of Romans 14, tolerance derives not from the weakness of faith, but from its vital sense. In other words, a strong stand in the faith. Tolerance isn't the actions of someone who's weak in the knees and flabby spiritually and has a weak set of convictions. Not necessarily. No, I read Jewett again. Tolerance derives not from the weakness of faith, not Pauline tolerance, not the tolerance we're advocating in the interest of looking for unity. It derives not from the weakness of faith, but from its vital sense of its origin in the tolerant love of God. A vital, sound, biblical, faith, robust awareness that my own positions, my own present standing, if I feel I'm among the strong, among those that know things, among those that are well-balanced, if I think that I am in that category, I should be recognizing that my faith teaches me that I only arrived here through the tolerant love of God. And I want to share that, like I would share the comfort that I receive when I'm in a trial. And I would apply the principle where Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, We could say the God of all helpful, loving, productive, proper tolerance for that which needs to be brought into balance and ministered to so it can build things up into the head which is Christ. Blessed be this God of mercy and tolerance who gave mercy to us in all our confusion that we may be able to show mercy and tolerance to those who are presently confused with the same sense and value of tolerance wherewith we ourselves were tolerated by God. I believe that's a very biblical idea that can be kept within the biblical framework of God's overall message to us. I close with one last passage for this part of our study. I'm going to read it to you out of the ESV. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others.